Thanks very much, uh, Kiora, and uh, thank you for the invitation. My work is in the UK, and it's uh, a real privilege, and I'm grateful to be given the opportunity to speak uh, here in New Zealand, and uh, uh, much appreciated. Well, I reckon that by now that you'd be uh, suffering death by PowerPoint, so uh, I decided I would take the plunge and do something a bit different, and uh, I'm going to use Prezi which is a bit new to me, and I guess it might be new to you, but there you go. Uh, I'll have a bash at using it and give you a break from PowerPoint. And I hope that the content might be as stimulating as the, uh, as the actual presentation, because that's really more important than the presentation. Uh, using Prezi, it's, uh, there's a web link there, so you can view it yourselves at a later date, if you so wish. If you have a little laptop, you can be one step ahead, one step ahead of me and see which is coming next. Uh, if you bring it up on your laptop. So let's get moving. Uh, so that's what I'm going to be covering. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, yeah. all singing, dancing. Yeah. So lots of dangerous drugs on there, obviously. Yeah, killer drugs. And the Lancet uh, Professor Nutt's research identified that tobacco and alcohol are in the top 10 most dangerous drugs when it comes to uh, serious harm. Uh, more about that later. Uh, and what I'm trying to do today, I guess, is a little bit... Uh, different in, in one sense because I feel like uh, we've been looking quite closely and personally and I guess what I'm trying to do is look quite from afar and maybe slightly different place from, from Tom and Doug but we're looking at the same thing but from a different perspective and I'm sure we share an awful lot that's very similar. So this presentation will explore our understanding and reaction to problematic drug use and I use the term problematic drug use, whereas people might say those who are addicts or those who have the disease. But we're talking about those pinnacle people at the very top of the uh, triangle. But there is a populist punitive discourse which perceives the physiological and the psychological dependence upon drugs as the key drivers that perpetuate ongoing addiction and the drivers that also threaten society. And I don't doubt the importance of psychology and physiolog physiological aspects of dependence, but I do want to emphasise the social aspects which I think get overlooked, and I'll be looking at that today. So I'll be drawing upon my experience of having worked as a drugs worker and then more recently as a researcher academic, and I want to look at the whole social construction of drugs. Because I do think we've been doing drugs for donkey's years, but we keep constructing it as a way as which it's something which is a demon and dangerous and weird, and, and, and people have been alluding to that. Uh, uh, you know, it's go ahead and have a drink. You know, you should have a drink, but whatever you do, don't take IV drugs. And well, what, what's all that about? That's very inconsistent, and, and I agree with the last speaker. Okay, so uh, I'll illustrate that uh, the byproducts of this sort of anti campaign against certain drugs, uh, stigma, discrimination, and exclusion, are for a lot of people more powerful in keeping them trapped in a drug centered lifestyle than the actual drug dependence. So drugs come and drugs go, and uh, this is a group of opium addicts, and uh, these are English opiate addicts. And uh, in the 1700s, opium was freely available in the UK. You buy it in corner shops, people would take it, they'd mix it with alcohol. And Keats, Wordsworth, Coleridge, uh, De Quincey, uh, famous uh, writers of English literature and still contributing today in, in, in terms of the, 
their well-read works or whatever, but these were actually uh, smackheads or opium users or whatever language you want to call. But they aren't what you normally perceive because the social construction of, of drug use at that time for opium was really very different, and these don't look to be the pictures of people who rob houses or whatever. And then we have uh, dr another drug that became very popular in the 40s, 50s and 60s, uh, a drug called tobacco, a very dangerous drug in the UK, kills about 100,000 people every year. And, uh, but what we have here is something that, that Doug was referring to, and I think it's an important point, which is that we have this crazy spectrum of criminalising on one level and demonising and then heavily promoting on the other spectrum. And I'm really not happy about either. And this, is, this illustrates how taking tobacco is sexy, it's sophisticated, it's cool, it's, uh, it's what good people do. Uh, and obviously there's a big tobacco industry behind that. And here we have uh, the figures of uh, drug use in the UK t today from the British Crime Survey. British Crime Survey, by the way, that omits 80,000 people who are incarcerated and omits to include people who are students in halls of residence and it omits people who are hard to reach. All categories of people who would be very high known to be drug users. However, despite that, 11.8 million people have admitted to using an illicit drug. So tobacco is still a, a drug of choice. Alcohol is still very much a drug of choice. But what we can see here is illicit drugs are, are also quite a drug of choice, although we might want to deny it. But the reality is, is illicit drug use is very much part of society. And you have there on the far right, 1.6 million people admitting to using illicit drugs in the past uh, in the past month itself. And then we have uh, drug use in the UK. Uh, just I think the key point to pick out there is uh, is I've argued a number of times that this we have this bifurcation, and I think it, to use another word used this morning, we have an apartheid going on. Where, where we have legal drugs on one side, which are very good, and by the way, have a coffee at the break, please, and, uh, and, and we enjoyed a glass of wine last night and whatever, and all this is all okay, but whatever you do, don't take cannabis, don't take ecstasy, don't take heroin or whatever, and we have this strange bifurcation, this apartheid, this, this division, which I cannot find any logic in whatsoever, and uh, within this, we, one of the, one of the uh, casualties of this is that the legally approved socially uh, promoted drugs such as uh, alcohol slip under the radar and what's happened here we see the figures there that uh, alcohol related deaths in the UK have doubled virtually since 1992 to 2008 from 6.7 per 100,000 to 13.6 so we have this overemphasis on 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 drugs which sometimes are, are, are safer if if they're obtained legally and cleanly, uh, but other legal drugs slipping through the, the radar. And here we have, uh, maybe in another way we could look at this and imagine that, that uh, triangle that Tom had, and uh, we have the, the gamut of different drug users. And uh, I think what's interesting here is if you look at the 25 to 34-year-old people, you see that, uh, this is New Zealand, by the way, this is the household survey, I think it is, uh, New Zealand, no, it's the, I think it's... Uh, 
I can't remember where I got it from, in all honesty, but the, the web links there. It's a Department of Health study, uh, January 2010, it was published, the web links there. But what you see is of the 25 to 34 year olds, 60% admitted to using an illicit drug at some point in their life. If we repeat this uh, survey in 30 years' time, what will be very interesting is at least 60% of the 55 plus are going to be uh, saying that they've used an illicit drug. So maybe our perceptions and our, 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 our demonization and our hostility might change because the people in power tend to be the people who are at that older age range. So that might be quite an interesting period. Uh, but this, th this here is the, uh, taken from the, the World Drugs Report from the UNODC, and uh, what you see here is, is some guesstimates of worldwide illicit drug use, and of 2009-10, uh, maybe 200 million, 270-odd million illicit drug users. But what's most interesting is the tiny green uh, darker bit at the bottom, which are those who are deemed to be problem drug users. So it's another portrayal of that little pimple at the top of the triangle. Uh, and that definition of problem drug use is people who inject or people who use on a long-term basis or regular basis, which may be that some of those don't actually have major problems that they cause themselves or others. So... So I think what we're seeing here, and I think one of my arguments, is that we need to uh, stop. It's a bit like tuna fishing. We, we, I don't know if you, about you, but I don't feel comfortable catching tuna with big nets because I know that when you cast out your big net for the tuna, there's a whole pile of other fish that are caught in the net and they, they, they get might killed or get thrown away. And actually, they don't want the tuna. They don't want the other fish. They want the tuna. And we really they should fish for tuna with lines. And I think we should, we should fish for people who've got drug problems or people who've got addiction or disease with lines as opposed to catching all those people. And if we get heavily into drug testing, then if I drug test everybody in the room to try and find out who are that tiny proportion who have alcohol problems, or maybe we might use the language of an alcohol disease or whatever. They're a tiny proportion, but if I, if I test you all to see who tests positive for alcohol, I'm no further on. I'm just catching you in my net and then dealing with you and having to process you. If we stop and search people all the time for possession of drugs, we're not necessarily catching the people who've got problems. So I'm suggesting that we can save a lot of money, a lot of energy, a lot of resources, and maybe protect human rights by concentrating on line fishing for those people who've got major problems. Obviously, there's things we can do to help those who are vulnerable and at risk of getting problems, but I'm not sure by, by shoving that big net out that that's the best way to do it. So a key point uh, is that we have a war on particular drugs, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me, uh, not because I've got any liberal view or anything, I'm just trying to be evidence-based and rational and look at what I'm reading and it doesn't make sense to me. Uh, and the vast majority of people who use illicit drugs do not have drug problems. Like the vast majority in this room, people who use alcohol do not have an alcohol problem. I wouldn't make that assumption. Uh, if you use tobacco, you might not have a tobacco problem. And I think also we'd say that we all use drugs for pleasure. Maybe there's a minority of people uh, a 0.1% or 1% or whatever, but the, the vast majority of us will take uh, caffeine, 
uh, for pleasure. We need our hit in the morning. We'll take a, a glass of wine to relax or whatever. So I think we have to... Uh, my, my argument would be to create a more inclusive approach uh, as opposed to a more separated approach. And I think that inclusivity would also have a big impact in terms of reintegration and rehabilitation. And that's the point I'll be moving on to. So while drugs uh, come and go in terms of their pleasures, opium has come and gone. We no longer have opium. Tobacco uh, was heavily promoted. But now we've tried to stigmatise tobacco users and uh, we, we are anti-tobacco now. And I'm not so convinced about stigmatising tobacco users myself, uh, not, certainly not in, in these ways. Uh, I appreciate the dangers of it and that's, that's to be uh, mentioned. And, uh, but the stigma, stigmatisation of people uh, and the demonisation, because often the war on drugs, I've, one of my articles is the war on drugs or war on drug users, because it's not a war on drugs, it ends up as a war on drug users, and that will really impact upon their own ability and their self-esteem. I was asked to speak in Scotland a couple of years ago uh, on a, a conference on stigma, and I thought, well, I'll have a look through the local press and see what they've been writing about drug users. And this, if you look at the, if you can see the small print there, this is only a couple of months from June to August, and uh, there's a real campaign against people who take drugs. Uh, and I think my concern with this is the attempt to create causal relationships. I think if we were against Pakiha people and we changed the word addict to Pakiha, and, or, or if we were against mentally ill people and we changed it to schizophrenic, or if we were against uh, people with epilepsy and we called it epileptic or dyslexic, I, 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 think we, we, I hope we would find it offensive because it's a, it's, it's a cheap way of, of perpetuating stigma and, uh, and really discrimination. And I think that they're the issues, I think, that are underlying treatment and rehabilitation. So I think it's creating causal connections which aren't necessarily there. You know, Amy Winehouse died of drugs. Well, actually, she didn't. Uh, so we, we, we make these sort of connections. This, this was one which, which went, for me, beyond it, really, and uh, I wrote a complaint letter to the ombudsman about this particular. This was the, the letter was uh, subject to a, uh, a complaint which was upheld and uh, has since been withdrawn, uh, the, the article from the internet. But the, but the Irish Independent, a respectable newspaper, uh, the columnist there wrote, and there's an American company, forgive me, uh, Tom, uh, but there's an American company that's uh, a pressure group who, who will pay drug users to be sterilised. And they came over to the UK and they set up in Scotland. And so this was quite a, 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 uh, quite a, a political issue, really. And, and basically, anyone who's a drug user, it would be good to get them sterilised. And if we can sterilise people, then they won't perpetuate this problem. And, and uh, I find it quite problematic. <laughs> so, so people here, so we've been referred to as uh, uh, drug users, being referred to as feral, as worthless scumbags. Uh, if every junkie in the country were to die tomorrow, I would cheer the vermin. Uh, and I just find all this, uh, this level of hate, and uh, I think is is seriously worrying. I think when we start dehumanising and having enemies within and convenient enemies. That's a nice uh, drug there. Uh, what's in a bottle? Yeah, so drug misuse is a social construct, I would suggest, that uh, 
Yes, there are people who have major drug problems, but largely drug misuse is a social construct. And that our preferred drugs come and go, they're in and out of favour in time. That some drugs are culturally promoted and other drugs are demonised, and, and we need to challenge that. I would love to see a drug policy which incorporated caffeine, alcohol, tobacco, ecstasy, heroin, whatever. But, uh, of course, uh, they're not really drugs, and I didn't mean to say that alcohol was a drug because it isn't a drug, and these people are not really the fallout of drugs. These are people who've had a good time and they've just had one too many, and that's the social construct. But it isn't really a social construct. They are drug users, and they have, they have created a lot of damage for themselves and for others. But we will still participate because we don't think... Uh, we, well, we know that, that not everybody who takes alcohol has those problems. But alcohol is a dangerous drug. And uh, these are here are social constructions of leisure and pleasure, uh, which we have bought into. And I think that's the other side uh, of the spectrum where we need a more balanced perspective when it comes to enjoying drugs in society, uh, if that's what some people choose to do. Uh, we, we need to be able to do it in a way that isn't heavily promoted, that doesn't embed uh, drugs as, as part of our celebration. It's your birthday, go and celebrate. You pass your driving test, go and celebrate. New Year's Eve, go and celebrate. And it's a euphemism for getting ratted on alcohol, and that's the culture we've created. Uh, and, and I challenge that, and, and I'm disturbed by that, really. Uh, better move on, otherwise I'll be having a rant. Okay, so... Uh, Enemies within. So the problem I, I, I'm suggesting is that, and this was a government minister in the UK, uh, it's very easy to, to rally and, uh, against drug users and, and, and cry out that they do all these things, that they tear open families, that they are the scourge of the world, they are the blight on whole communities, they are the menace, they, they are preying on our children. I just think it's easy... It's easy uh, uh, political gain, but with great damaging impact and a lot of misinformation. There are people who take drugs that cause a lot of problems, but there are people who take alcohol and all sorts of other things. So I think what we have is a form of institutionalised structural discrimination that operates, and that becomes internalised by drug users who also see themselves as scum and see themselves as no good, uh, as, as worthless people. It affects their self-esteem, it affects their own expectations, but it also deeply affects their opportunities and their social capital because they become excluded and shunned and distrusted. And without social capital, it's going to be very difficult for them to find support networks, friendships, family, uh, housing, education, training, employment. They will be excluded because of those very sort of fears that people have been fed by, by those in authority. And we bought into that. So people who've, who develop drug problems uh, are people to be excluded. Uh, very quickly then, now, people who are at risk of problem drug use, this is from uh, work in the UK... Uh, and this certainly bears out my experience of working with problem drug users. They are, they are people who are surrounded by drugs, people who live in communities where there's lots of drugs, people who are, uh, have a lack of identification with the mainstream society, people who have a sense of alienation. Uh, maybe they've been abused, maybe they, they've been, uh, people have walked out in the family, maybe they're isolated. Uh, they're people with, uh, with limited suitable allies or pastimes, uh, limited emotional support, positive feedback, and people who can't really negotiate their way through 
uh, to legitimate access in mainstream society. In other words, they're, the, they're often the discarded working class of society, the poor people in our society who can no longer find access in, a, in an advanced capitalist society because their labour is often no longer required. So I'm suggesting that a lot of what's happening is for the people who end up being uh, stuck on drugs, they, they often are born into positions of social exclusion and poverty, move into drug use, which leads to further exclusion, and then they're stuck on a spiral and not sure how to get out of that. And that's a, a process of marginalisation, discrimination and exclusion. And what does drugs offer? I think drugs offers people purpose, routine, identity, structure, confidence, uh, rewards, excitements, pleasures, and it gives them a busyness. So if you're, if you're stuck in a no man's, uh, you know, a, a situation of being able to go nowhere, then this is what's on offer, and that offers a great deal of, of busyness. But it is a 24-7 business, an exhausting business. It's a dehumanizing business. I wouldn't recommend it. But if you've got nothing and life is flat and monotonous and you can see no access to legitimate uh, benefits that are available to others in society, then waking up planning how on earth you're going to get your money, then having to go grafting to steal your money, and then having to go and sell the stuff you've stolen to, uh, to get money, and then going out to score to, to, to buy the drugs, and then, then taking your drugs to inject or hit up, then you can chill out because you work flipping hard to get all that and you have to be good at it. And uh, now you've got your, your, your goodies for the hard work, you can chill out and uh, another day will begin. But that's 24-7 uh, uh, every day. And you do that for 10 years and you have no friends, just acquaintances, and you live in a bubble. But that keeps you busy and gives you purpose and routine. And when people are given methadone or people are told to become drug-free, I'm thinking, okay, that's fine. And I'm not against those things, but I'm thinking, what's going to replace this? What's going to keep people busy? What, what, what are they going to have? Uh, it's not just about becoming drug-free. It's actually finding a niche in life. So we, we have you know, Prochaska, Declamente, Norcross, and I, and I like it, and I think it works, and I've used it. And we have uh, Miller and Rolnick's motivational interviewing, but it's very psychological, very pathological, individually centred, which doesn't really encompass the structural issues. So, uh, so I think, you know, well, I might just skip that because I'm a bit short of time, really. But just sort of re reaffirming that, that, that recovering drug users, even when they become drug-free, they have a lot more barriers to overcome, which the barriers of a criminal record, the barriers of social exclusion, the barriers of not being able to secure employment, of a lack of qualifications. So I, I devised this a, many, a good few years ago, really. Uh, I've refined it a little bit since, but basically saying, okay, well, there's Prochaska and Di Clemente's model at the bottom there. You know, you go through the different phases, can't see, don't see, won't see, I've got a problem. Or maybe the ambivalent phase, sometimes maybe, not, not quite sure, yes, maybe, and the changes. And then the action phase of doing something about it. And then you've got control. You might be drug-free, you might be in control of drug use. But my argument is it should never stop there. And I think that links to what a model I think that Doug put up and also that the previous speaker uh, mentioned, which is that there's a whole business of, uh, of uh, re-engaging with society, of finding uh, a new reorientation, of finding a, a way of actually getting back access into society itself and participating. But they're prevented from doing it because of this discrimination, this wall of exclusion that, that makes it impossible for people to, uh, to properly engage. 
So I'm saying that the vast majority of drug interventions are geared towards helping people below the wall of exclusion to become drug-free or in control. Uh, but recovery movement is trying to break through the barrier, and good, good on the recovery movement for doing that. But it's almost like, hang on, let these people through. They've got big yellow jackets on. They're drug-free. Let them through. They're gonna, but, and they'll become drug workers. But I'm saying that people who are drug-free, people who are recovered, need to be belonging to all of society. They don't need to be specially marked out as being recovered or drug-free. Let's integrate people. Let's give them uh, inclusion, social capital. Otherwise, it's overwhelmingly difficult. So, so just a sort of uh, trying to, I think, complicated and, and jazzy uh, diagrams of the order of the day. So I thought I'd pay my contribution. Uh, so, uh, so what I'm saying is that there's the wall of exclusion, and unless uh, there's no point in just helping people up all the time and giving them plasters, we need to actually start addressing some of the stuff that's coming down at them, because they're trying to climb up these steps, but there's a load of stuff. Uh, and these, these voices I've put here are, are not made-up voices. They're all direct quotes from the government, from the community, from drug users or from the media. You know, the media saying that cannabis caused a 14-year-old to kill. The, the, the community saying, we want to get rid of all the junkies, let's nuke them. Uh, so you've got all this sort of perpetual uh, stuff which is very anti-anybody who has a drug problem. And yet we have this sort of strange... Uh, apartheid or bifurcation that exists where we all carry on enjoying our alcohol and many people do fall foul of alcohol and people are making progress but my argument is that people are relapsing partly as a result of the hitting the wall of exclusion and never really being given chances to reorientate to establish new patterns and new habits and never really being able to reintegrate with society how, how am I doing for time? Am I all right for a few minutes? Oh, only one more minute. All right, better quickly rush through. Right, so the social dimension to recovery, right, better quickly run through. So uh, coping without drugs and without social capital, I'm saying that what people need is, uh, is, is not reintegration. People need integration. They don't need rehabilitation. They need uh, habilitation because they ha many people haven't had that from the first time. Just very quickly to finish about some of the other drivers, is I would say that tough drug policy does not result in, in, in decreased drug use. So the, t the tougher you get, you don't decrease drug use. Tolerance or soft or liberal drug policy does not lead to increased drug use. But what tough drug policy does do is it makes it harder, as I've tried to illustrate, for drug users to seek help, and uh, it makes things more dangerous all round. But also, more liberal drug policy or tolerant drug policy or humanistic means that people will also uh, more likely to seek help and reduce drug-related harms. And we can learn from other countries like Portugal, where 10 years ago they decriminalised uh, possession of drugs. And uh, Caitlin uh, Hughes and Alex Stevens, their research identified that as a result of the last 10 years, uh, there has been a re reduction in problematic drug use, there has been a reduction in adolescent drug use, there's been an uptake in, in services, uh, uh, access to services, and, and uh, a reduction in opiate-related deaths. We can also learn quickly from, from Sweden where they tried to colonise and ghettoise uh, drugs by putting everybody in a park and letting them get on with it, which didn't look so smart in the old Swiss 
order of uh, things, but uh, they changed things around and learned from that mistake and started giving people heroin on prescription and letting them inject it in a, a nurse environment, supervised and whatever. And lo and behold, now, uh, 10 years later, and after many successful evaluations, 68% of the general public have said, yeah, do this for the whole of the country, because this seems to make a lot of sense. So I think sometimes more humanistic approaches can result in, in, in uh, uh, support from the public. And this is just a quick one to say that actually what seems to be linked to drug use is inequality in societies, not actually drug policy. And my final slide, uh, and thanks for bearing with me, is the Global Commission on Drug Policy, uh, which had Kofi Annan and uh, the Prime Minister from Greece and uh, Sir Richard Branson, and, and they were saying, which is what I've been trying to get across here, really, with the evidence, is that we should end criminalisation, marginalisation and stigmatisation of people who use drugs but who do no harm to others uh, and, and challenge rather than reinforce misconceptions and ignorance and prejudice that exists and encourage more experimentation in countries like Switzerland, like Portugal and indeed New Zealand. Uh, places like that can, can, can experiment with, with more radical uh, approaches which might have a lot more of a positive impact. So, uh, so just to leave you with two empty glasses and to think, well, maybe we could fill those empty glasses with a drug policy that was clean, the drug policy that was mature and complex and well-balanced, well just like a nice red wine. Thank you.